Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning as we continue through the book of First Peter. As we begin, as we uh, did last week, praying for those in Ukraine in that region. Uh, let's bow our heads and go before, the, before God this morning. Father, as we come before you, we, uh, we think of those in Ukraine and uh, the area around there, the region that's uh, being devastated by war. Lord, we know that uh, you love each and every person. Lord, we pray that uh, your protection would go before those people and that, Lord, people would see your grace even in the midst of evil. Lord, we pray that we as Christians around the world would demonstrate love and grace as a reflection of your love and your grace. And as we look at your word this morning, may we be challenged and may we be encouraged in the hope we have in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We face a battle each and every day. It's a battle to choose to do right, but not only to choose to do right, but then to follow through with that choice. The battle takes place in our mind, it takes place in our actions. How many times have uh, you made a bad choice, or maybe you, you des desired to make the right choice, but you didn't follow through on what you know that you should have done? You know, in, in making choices, we must be convinced of the value of the right choice. The battle may be lost if we feel that making the right choice is too hard or, or not that important. Because of that, we uh, make a wrong choice. We choose the path of sin. Or maybe we have good intentions, but we just struggle in following through. 1 Peter chapter 1, in verses 13 through 21, we, we find that Peter helps us to understand the importance of making godly choices. And then also, a strategy that is necessary in helping us have victory in that battle. He calls us to be holy. We see that beginning in verse 13. The central imperative of this passage is to be holy. An imperative is a command that God gives us. And Peter here in these verses shares with us how we can be holy. We see that we are to prepare our mind. Verse 13 says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter begins verse 13 to say, by saying, Gird up the loins of your mind in the New King James. You may be saying, okay, that sounds really strange. What does that mean to gird up the loins of our mind? It has the idea of, of cinching up like a belt. I have a picture here on the screen that uh, can help us understand what Peter is telling us to do. You see what happens is in Bible times they would have long robes. And, and if they were working, those robes would oftentimes trip them up. And so they would take that robe up and they would take the bottom of it and tuck it into their belt 
so it wouldn't trip them up. And, and Peter is telling us, listen, don't allow the, your mind to trip you up from doing what God has called you to do. We could use the term rolling up our sleeves to get to work. But not only does he say, gird up the loins of your mind, but also be sober. Now you're probably here this morning saying, all right, I got this checked out. I'm not drunk this morning. I'm sober. But it means much more than that in Scripture. It means to think clearly and morally decisively. We need to be recognizing in our mind what God desires for us to do. Morally correct. Morally decisive. And then he goes on in verse 13 and says that we're to rest our hope in the grace that is brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a couple different parts to that. We need to recognize that, that God is faithful. We can trust Him to fulfill His promise to us. The greatest promise of eternity with Him through the forgiveness of sin. But it also reminds us to think long term. Often we sin when we desire immediate gratification or we take the path of least resistance. But Peter is reminding us that we need to think long term. We need to recognize our eternal hope in Christ and that changes how we live today. Now, as we look at these three things, girding up our mind, being sober, and looking forward to the hope, why do we have such a struggle? I mean, if, if we think about that, I mean, if, if, uh, if we could tell every teenager, listen, if you put $50 away each month until you turn 65 with a moderate return of investment, a moderate interest, you'll have 2 to $3 million set aside. Well, that sounds simple. Let's do it, right? Now, some of us are saying we wish we would have done that when we were 17 or 18 years old. But if you heard that as a 17 or 18-year-old and you said, okay, I'm going to do that, but what happens? How many 17 or 18-year-olds follow through on it? Not a lot. Why? Because they're just like us. The things that I see that our, oh yeah, I could have this, I could use this, and, and pretty soon that thing that could be a priority and change our retirement becomes something that becomes second, third, fourth tier of our importance list, and we don't follow through. And we can see it on paper. A financial advisor can sit and say, okay, let's, let's take this out, a percentage rate and, and the money that you put in, and let's look at it, and we can see the compounding interest, and you go through it, and you say, oh, that's amazing. Look at the bottom line. But what happens? We get sidetracked. 
and we have something that we say, oh, I could really use this, so, so I'm going to just sort of miss this month and, and, and get what I want now, and then that happens over and over again, and pretty soon we're 45 or 50, and we don't have much in there. But in how we live as a follower of Christ, we recognize the eternal rewards. But yet what happens? We get sidetracked. We get distracted. And we forget what God desires for us to do. A greater understanding of the brain will will help us grasp the importance of what it means to prepare our mind. Front portion of our brain helps us process, including moral judgment. However, there's also an emotional part of our brain that, that can override the judgment. Reward and pleasure. And oftentimes, we, we should be able to say, you know, this is going to have some negative consequences, but boy, I sure want to do it. And what happens? What we truly know we shouldn't do will have long-term negative consequences we choose to do. Another issue in our brain is that when things take place, they create neurological pathways that are formed when we repeat our thoughts or our actions. We use the term a habit or an addiction. Something becomes second nature. Why does a a Christian man who knows that pornography is wrong still get drawn back in and back in and back in and back in? And and what happens? They, They say, God, please help me with this. But we seem to just get drawn back in and back in. Because we have built those neurological pathways. And they program our life and our actions, our thoughts. Paul reflected on that battle when he said the things that he wanted to do he did not do and the things he did not do or the things that he did he did not want to do. He said there's things that, that I know I should do but I don't do them. There's things I know I shouldn't do but I do. Here's Paul. We would consider him one of the greatest ambassadors of God of all history. But yet he had that continual struggle of what it of the battle between doing right or choosing to do wrong. That continual battle, and we face that same battle. It's a battle of the mind. That's why Peter said, Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, looking forward to the hope that we have in God. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says that we're to renew our minds. Peter recognized that the battle to live a holy life involves the mind as well as our actions. We must be prepared. But not only the mind, he goes on in verses 14 through 17 and reminds us to change our conduct. 
Beginning in verse 14, it says this, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust is in your ignorance, but as He who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now this change of conduct that he talks about is, has both a negative and a positive aspect. Things that we must get rid of and what we must put on. He said there in verse thir- or 14 that we're to, to get rid of the former lust, our, our life before Christ. And we can do that when we recognize all we have in Christ and the dead end of life without Him. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul writing says this, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Paul was was writing there, listen, God has taken us from the dead end of life without Christ to the hope of life with Him. And you would think that we'd be able to recognize that and say, yes, what a great ending that I have with Christ. And so that should affect how I live but we still face that battle. Think back to the Israelites. They were out in the wilderness. We we find the story in Numbers 11, and by the the way, it's, it's one of many times this happens in their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. God had miraculously brought them out of Egypt. He had brought the plagues upon the Egyptians, and they went from slavery to freedom. And they were on their way to a land that God had promised. And God went before them in a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. I mean, God's power was amazing, seen over and over and over again. And you would think that they would say, you know what? (laughs) I've I've looked at this and and God's side wins. I think I'm going to get on the winning side. But in Numbers 11, God had miraculously brought manna for them to eat. But they wanted meat. And check out what they say in Numbers 11, beginning in verse 4. Listen as I read. It says, Now the mixed multitude that were among them yielded to intense craving. There were others that weren't Jewish that were bringing bad thoughts and desires before them, but they yielded to the intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, wept again, this wasn't the first time, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Now think about it. 
What did they do in Egypt? They were slaves. But they got this crazy picture that in Egypt they just sat around and had, you know, surf and turf every night. Life was good, you know, they, they, they sat around, they had these wonderful meals, and now all they had was manna. Now, they needed a reality check. Because what did they have in Egypt? They had misery. They were slaves. But God said, I'm going to rescue you and take you to a land which I've promised to you. And even beginning in Genesis chapter 12, the father of Israel, Abraham, God said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And your descendants will be as the stars of the sky, as the, as the sand on the seashore. And they had seen over and over when God had fulfilled His promises, but they thought, you know what? We just came out here to die. Think about how good we had it back in Egypt. But we can do the same thing. We see the faithfulness of God. Now, is there going to be hard times? Absolutely. Peter talked about that back, if you remember from last week, back in verses 6 through 9. The trials that we face. But even in the midst of the trials, we see that God is faithful. But the Israelites foolishly complained and didn't look at life from God's eternal perspective. But what are we to do? We're to put on holiness. We think of holy as pure. It actually has also a connotation of being unique. God is pure. He is unique. Can you imagine, and, and in, in Scripture it talks about the scene around the throne of God, and around the, around the throne for eternity, they're continually saying, holy, holy, holy. We in our finite minds cannot picture the purity, the uniqueness of God. We have a holy God. And our goal is to be like Christ. We're to be holy, as it says there, as He is holy. Now notice in verse 15, we're, <clears throat> excuse me, we're to be holy in all our conduct. We're to have no areas that are kept from that goal. Now here's another struggle we have. We say, all right, God, I'm going to give you this and this and this, but, but this area of my life I'm going to keep to myself. I remember I, I was in a wedding. It's actually my brother's wedding. He, I was uh, in, in the wedding, I think, because my mom and dad told my brother, John, or John needs to be in the way. Who knows what it was? We, we actually got along pretty well. But, uh, so I was in this wedding, and, and one of the guys that was one of the groomsmen was a Secret Service agent. And so we, we didn't really have, you know, the, the uh, the, 
the groomsmen all get together, the bridesmaids, and everybody was from different areas, but the wedding was in the Washington, D.C. area, and, and, and so for sort of our groomsmen or, or a bachelor, bachelorette party, we all went together, and we got a tour of the White House after hours. I'm, yeah, I know, wow, it was impressive. And we got to go into some areas where the average tour people didn't get to go. Pretty impressive, huh? Now, by the way, a couple of things. First of all, the only reason I got to do that was because who I knew. That's a reminder. We have a lot of things because we know Jesus Christ, right? But the second thing, even with the special tour, there were areas where they said, no, you're not going to go there. And uh, <clears throat> it was a few years ago. And there was a guy named Reagan who was in the White House. And, and I, I tried to tell the tour guide, that, excuse me, Ronnie called me up. I'm supposed to go see him. But it didn't work. There were areas that we could not go into. But we do that with God. And we say, God, I'm going to keep this to myself. I'm enjoying this too much or... You know, giving this up to you is going to affect my life too much. But Peter's saying, listen, be holy in all of your conduct. And then he goes on and he says, why should we do that? Verses 16 and 17, and Peter's doing a great job of just outlining this. All right, have a prepare your mind and live a holy life. And he says, you do it because, verse 16, it is written, God's Word tells us to do that. But not only that, we see in verse 17 that there's going to be a judgment. Positive and negative. But there will be a time where we stand before a holy God and we, we share what we've done. Now, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ cleanses us from the punishment or pays for the punishment of our sin, but, but we still have an opportunity or uh, we can call it an opportunity to be judged as His followers. And so Peter says, listen, live a holy life. Begin it with a prepared mind which leads to holy actions. And then in verse 18, he seems to just take a change of direction. But it's really something that he's done and will continue to do throughout this letter. And he talks about how we are precious. Verses 18 through 21 says this, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And through him believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, it's interesting what Peter does, and it's, and it's something he does. The Apostle Paul, if you read his letters, he did this also. But it's sort of taking from the, and, and my English teacher would be proud of me, the indicative and the imperative. The indicative, the idea of the facts, what we have in Christ, to the imperative, how we should live. And, and Peter goes back and forth. 
Oftentimes when, when the Apostle Paul would write a letter, he would begin the letter with just a long list of all the things we have in Christ, who we are in Him, our, our eternal hope that we have in Christ. And then he says, now live this way. If you look at verse 13, which we began, began this morning looking at, it begins with that word, therefore. And we've talked about it before. It's based on what has taken place. You need to do this. Therefore, prepare your minds. Live a holy life. Why? Because of our living hope. We talked about last week. We found in verse 3 and verses 4 and 5 the inheritance that we have through the power of God. The ability to, to handle the trials because God is with us. In verses 10 through 12, we see that what we have that the, the prophets talked about, the preachers shared, the angels observed, all these things. Therefore, it's a cause and effect. And so now in verses 13 through 17, he says we need to be holy. Knowing, verse 18, that you are redeemed. I'm to live holy. Why? Because I have a living hope. Because I have an inheritance in Christ. I can live holy, verse 18, because I am redeemed by the precious blood of of Christ. It's a cause and effect. Redeemed. That word in the Greek is a, a picture of what would take place when someone went to purchase the freedom of a slave. We have a picture here, a reminder that, that we are freed from the bondage of sin. The Bible gives that picture that we're slaves to sin. But because of Jesus Christ, we have freedom. He has paid the price for our sins. Salvation is our redemption in Christ. And in that redemption, we see that we're valuable. God values us in that He sent His Son to die for us. Vance Havner, who's the former cha chaplain of the U.S. Senate, said this, Salvation is free, but it is not cheap. Salvation costs God a great deal. Cost God the precious blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, we're not redeemed with the lowest bid. But instead, we're redeemed by God's highest price. Now, if you're dating someone here and you're thinking about getting married, I'm going to talk to guys here. Let me give you a hint. Don't take your girlfriend to the jewelry store. Let me tell you why. I took my girlfriend, now my wife, to the jewelry store. It was a mistake. Because what happens? What happens when you walk in and, and the people that work there aren't dumb? They say, all right, here comes this uh, young man, this young lady. They're coming, they're smiling, they're sort of looking at each other, and then they look at those rings and like, oh, boy. So what's the first question they ask? How much do you want to spend? Now think about that. She's standing right next to you. And I'm giving you free advice, by the way, but I did it. What am I going to say? 
If the guy actually saw how much this poor seminary student had in his savings account, <laughs> he would have said, you know, I'm going on lunch. You're not worth spending time trying to show these rings to because you can't afford them anyway. But what am I going to say? Well, what's the cheapest thing you got? No, because she's standing next to you. She sort of probably takes a little step back. Yeah, yeah. how much do you think I'm worth? Yeah. <laughs> that much. But what did God do for us? God paid the ultimate price. God so loved the world, God so loved me, that he sent his only son. The ultimate price. Now, have you seen those signs around? We buy ugly houses. And I heard just a little story about the guy that started, and I can't remember all the details, so I'm not going to share it with you, but... Uh, it's actually a pretty amazing company. And I think there's a couple others that are sort of offshoots of it. But the goal is, yeah, my house is falling apart, but I could sure use some money, so maybe they'll buy it from me. And what do they do? They buy it, they fix it up, and they sell it for a nice profit. But guess what God does? God buys ugly houses. He's purchased me. Why? Because I'm valuable to him. And he desires to have relationship with me. And then he goes on to say that our hope is in God alone. You know, I am hopeless without God. But with God, I can have and just like he said in verses 3 and following, and now as he said in verses 18 through 21, all these amazing things I have in God, what should my response be? To live a holy life. To desire to be more like Jesus Christ. I do it by preparing my mind, by renewing my mind. But I do it because I remember what I have in Christ and I remember that God desires relationship with me and he wants me to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and when I think long term, and when I think about all that God has done, I can say I desire to be holy as God is holy. To be pure and to be unique in a world that needs to see the reflection of Jesus Christ in my life. So this week, you're going to face different things. We're all going to face different things. But throughout the week, we're going to have the choice, what am I thinking? How am I acting? Do I respond like Christ? Or do I respond in my own desires, my own way? But in and all, I'm called to be holy as God is holy. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, may we be encouraged in the hope we have in Christ. Lord, that our eternity is secure in you. 
Lord, help us this week to live differently. No matter the circumstances, no matter the options that we have, Lord, help us to honor you. Help us to live to glorify you. Help us to be holy as you are holy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.